So we have Nick Krause back today to unfold God's word for us, and we're going to be reading from Mark 1. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with their hired servants and followed him. And when they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have we to do with, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately he took hold. They told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and then and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. The word of God. Please be seated. For your word to us, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his life and his ministry. We pray that you would speak to our hearts uh, according to our needs. that we might see in Jesus, uh, our Savior, and uh, our King. And we just thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, Evergreen. It's good to see everyone. You know, it's an amazing thing to read the scriptures, that we get to hear God's word and what he would have for us to hear this morning. It's an amazing thing that we get to pray to God as our father and that the king that we're reading about right now, he is our king. If you confess your sins, turn from your sins to the living God, entrust your life to Jesus Christ to be your Lord, your king, and your Savior, this is not just mere history. It is a historical account, but it's so much more than that. We get to read about the character of our King who is right now seated on the throne of heaven. You know, there's lots of different things going on today, wars and rumors of wars, disease, pestilence, plaguing our lands our world and that can be sometimes a distraction for us to make us think that those are the biggest problems that we face but the biggest problem that we face as human beings was introduced to us in the very beginning god created this world and created it good and then mankind fell genesis 3 Adam and Eve disobeyed God and were then subjugated to God's wrath and curse. 
under the oppression of Satan himself, destined for hell. That's our biggest problem. That's our biggest, that's the biggest problem that faces humanity today. And it's the same then as it was now. And God, though, has not just left us in this estate of sin and misery. When mankind fell, and the biggest problem that they then had was that a good God was going to punish a sinful people, God decided to deal with that by sending a king. And that's what we look at in our text today. The reason why we're reading such a, a, you know, it seems like a rather large portion in our scriptures, verses 16 to 34, I wanted to give you a picture, a day in the life of Jesus, a day in the life of our king. And there's a common thread throughout this entire passage This king who God sent to redeem humanity, to save sinners, his entire ministry is marked by an authority. But it's not the kind of king and it's not the kind of authority that we might expect. If we're thinking of a God-sent king who's going to defeat the works of Satan, you might think of someone who's going to be domineering, someone who's going to come and dominate evil. Put it under his foot and crush it. With a sword, establishing his power, getting a political power, finding a throne that he could sit on, like conquering Roman Empire, then conquering the world and subduing it all to himself. But that's not the kind of authority that Jesus came to establish on earth. What defines a king, the very like definition, if you think about what a king is, it's directly tied to his authority. The king or the queen of England, first we know that there's a sphere that's kind of uh, associated with that rule. The queen of England. Here in America, we don't have to worry about what the queen, queen of England thinks or does and I think that in England, they don't really care too much about what she thinks or does. But there was a time and place where they did. It's not just the sphere of authority, though, where they're a king or a queen. But also what matters is what kind of authority and how much they possess. See, a king in the United States having a, a president, we have established a system where they're supposed to have very limited power and authority to where really it shouldn't matter who the president is in the United States. And even though you might have a president that you like or you don't like that's in office right now, it's only going to have a very limited effect on your life, at least in relation to as compared to a Caesar or a dictator. If you lived under the regime of Putin right now, it would really matter who that king was. And the type of authority he would be exercising would be total. And he would be exercising in such a way where he uses his people as a means to his own ends. That's the kind of kings that we see throughout the world. But that's not the kind of king that we see in Jesus. And if we follow him for just one day, seeing how he rules, seeing how awesome his power is, and then at at the same time, how he uses that power to serve others, it should astound you. It should captivate your heart. See, Jesus is the king of the universe, and that's a very good reason why you should follow him. But you should also follow him because he is good, because he is kind, because he is compassionate, because he cares about you as an individual and humanity as a group, there's so many reasons for you to follow Christ as your king. And what we're going to trace through our text that I've titled this, the king who has come to serve. And we're going to see how the king came to serve by following how he demonstrates his authority. 
We'll see the authority to follow him, how he commands other people to follow him in verses 16 through 20. We'll see that he has authority that is obeyed and will be obeyed in verses 21 through 28. And we end our time together by focusing on verses 29 through 34, where we see that all this, the authority of Christ, is used to serve people, which is counterintuitive if we think about his authority in working up to this moment. Let's just go ahead and start uh, where the catechism starts. Shorter Catechism 26 says that Jesus is a king, and it has an interesting answer to this question. It says, Christ executes the office of a king, and the very first thing it says is in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Let's start off where that starts off in subduing us to himself. Look down at verse 16. Jesus has just come. We've just been introduced to him. God has said that he's his son. He has been anointed by the Holy Spirit as the God-anointed king. Another word for that is Messiah or Christ, Jesus's title. He's driven into the wilderness where he confronts Satan in verses 14 and 15, uh, verses 12 and 13, where he's confronted Satan. And you see that that's going to mark his whole ministry. And when we get to verse 16, we see that he has started his ministry. He's in Galilee and he's passing along the sea. And he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. When we look at Jesus's call, his authority, authority that is to be followed, if you're tracking, that's the first point, the authority that is to be followed, he calls here in our text four disciples. He's not going to go through, Mark is not going to point out all the disciples that are going to be following him, at least not in the beginning. His main point is to show the fact that he called them, and then verse 18, they immediately left what they were doing and followed Jesus. Think of the level of authority that he had in order to command people to follow him, and they would leave everything they're doing, leave their job, leave their family, and follow after Christ. These men, these disciples, sometimes we picture the disciples as these poor, uneducated men. And while, yes, they were uneducated, especially relatively to the Pharisees or the scribes, who were kind of like the PhDs of that society, who studied God's law and saw how to apply it, knew the, maybe even had the entire scriptures memorized in Hebrew, a language that really they only used in the synagogue. We think of these people as poor, uneducated, and kind of outcast of society, and that Jesus is calling them and kind of giving them purpose, giving them a mission in life. But that's just simply not true. The Sea of Galilee was a, a, was a sea that was 13 miles long, seven miles wide, and it was one of the most productive bodies of water in the ancient world for the fishing industry. Josephus, an ancient church historian, a, a Jewish historian, records that when the Romans invaded Palestine in the year 68, they took over for their fishing business some 250 shipping fishing boats. For a small little town, that was a lot. In the Sea of Galilee, there's a variety of fish that do not exist elsewhere. So you would take these fish, these fish that did not exist in the surrounding regions, and you'd import them other other places, and you'd generate a pretty lucrative business for yourself. And you might be thinking that this is kind of, maybe I'm, I'm stretching out here that these people, these fishermen were lucrative businessmen, wealthy. Well, in verse 20, we see that 
these fishermen, these simple, uneducated fishermen, when they left their father in the boat, they left him with hired servants. They had enough money to first buy a boat, to buy the supplies, and they, had enough, they gained enough money from their fishing business that they were able to employ other people. These are not poor, destitute people that Jesus is you know, drawing to himself from the outskirts of society. He will do that. But the disciples that he calls just in the very beginning, a setup of a, a framework for you as the reader, understanding who Jesus is, it, who he is, and what his authority is like, he's taking people out of the world who were wealthy businessmen. Verse 18, they immediately left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So we kind of get two scenes here. The first set of disciples, the first two in verse 17, uh, in verse 18, leave behind their nets. And then the second two leave behind their father in the hired hands. What's Mark trying to point out about Jesus and his authority? When he commands people to follow him, what a true disciple looks like, this is kind of a secondary point. We see, I think the primary point that we get in this, in these few verses here, is we see that Jesus, when he spoke to people, he commanded them to follow him. The primary thing that we see here that would have been striking to the original audience would have been that this is not how rabbis normally function. People usually applied to be disciples of rabbis. Rabbis who were prominent had people coming after them to follow them. But Jesus, this rabbi, he commanded other people to follow him. You know, the prophets of the Old Testament didn't even do this. Many people were followers of Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. They had schools of prophets who were with them. But the prophets always pointed other people to follow Yahweh, to follow God. This rabbi went out, started his ministry, and he started commanding people to follow him. That's the first thing. I think the primary thing that we see is that he is calling people to follow him. What does this say about who Jesus is and the kind of audacity that it would be if he wasn't the son of God and he wasn't the Messiah, calling people to follow him? But the other thing, and I think that what Mark is trying to get at when he talks about the fact that they immediately left what they were doing or left their, even their family to follow him is we see the very first marks of what true discipleship looks like. What does it look like to be a follower of Christ? What does it take to be a follower of Christ? We saw the summary of Jesus's message the response to the fact that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is near, the response is to, be, to repent and believe the good news. And the next, very next thing that Mark demonstrates to his readers is what does it look like to repent and believe the good news? True discipleship looks like not someone who's the smartest of the bunch, someone who is stronger than other people, maybe even more humble than the other people around them? No. What it takes to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is someone who is willing to drop everything to follow Jesus. And it's not just for no reason. The reason why we're called to drop everything and leave, forsaking even our jobs, our wealth, our family, and the ties that we have to them. The reason why we're called to that is because we see the value of the person. And let me ask you, have you actually grasped 
how valuable Christ is, how worthy he is that if you're in a sinful industry that you should really should drop everything, forsake your wealth and follow him. How valuable is Christ to you? Are you willing, even if it means for you to quit your job, to leave your family behind, would you do that to follow Christ? That's what a true disciple looks like. It's someone who's willing to do that. Not because they're following some charismatic leader who's drawing them to themselves, but because you see who they are. You get a grasp of who he is. And we see that by what happens next, the authority that commands obedience. This was not the first time the disciples encountered Jesus, as we learn from the other gospels. We see that he had already interacted with them, already started teaching with them. And we start to get in verse 21 an idea of what was so attractive? What drew them to drop everything and follow him? Why should you drop your life, your own ambitions, and follow Christ? It's because he has authority that is to be obeyed. That's the second point. Verse 21, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered a synagogue and was teaching And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed. That word's probably a little bit light. Astounded. Fearful. The type of amazement that you have when you, it shocks you into fear is the kind of reaction they had. So that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. The type of authority that demands of us to follow this figure, this king, is the type of authority that they just saw. They just saw someone teaching with authority. It says that it's a new teaching. If you are wondering what this new teaching is that provoked such a response to say he's coming with authority, it's the one from verse 15. Fulfilled is the time, near is the kingdom. And when Jesus taught this new teaching to them, he did not do it like the scribes. It says in verse uh, 22 that he had authority not as the scribes. A synagogue, to have a synagogue, you had to have about 10 Jewish men, and it was a gathering place where you would gather to read God's law, study it, and have someone explain it, sing psalms, and pray. So it's actually kind of a lot like what we're doing here, singing, praying, and reading God's word and having it explained wonder where we get that from. And the scribes were like the PhDs. When I say the word scribe, you might think of someone who's like more like a stenographer recording, sitting there and uh, just maybe writing out the law, rewriting scripture or something like along those lines. But a scribe in the Old Testament, a scribe in the Jewish sense was someone who is really an expert on what the Bible teaches. And what do all PhDs do when they write and publish their journal articles? They quote a ton of people. They quote a ton of legitimate sources to show that, you know what? I, what I'm saying is based on the authority of a lot of other people. 
a lot of other very intelligent men. And guess what? I want you to think that I'm an intelligent man and to trust in me based on the authority around me. And I think that rule by uh, experts is not always the best thing. But Jesus doesn't lead like that. Jesus is not a king who points to the authority of other people, past rabbis, and what they've said about Scripture in order to establish his authority. His authority, first of all, when he teaches God's word, he shows that it's, this is God's word. If you want to see what his teaching was like, there was one time in Luke where he opened up the scroll, read an, a prophecy of Isaiah, one that actually Mark quoted, and he said, this text, what God said 700 years ago, is being fulfilled right now. And the people in verse 27, made a connection between the authority of his teaching and the authority that he had over demons. Why are they drawing this connection? This man comes onto the scene, and it's one thing to say, this is what the Bible teaches. I am in fulfillment of everything that has come before. I am the Messiah, the King. It's another thing to act. Look at the power. Look at the power of Jesus Christ. In the midst of their synagogue, in the midst of their worship service, they had someone kind of, imagine it being church right now and someone standing up in a demonic voice, utilizing the vocal cords of the poor soul out out in the congregation, utilizing it to shut the preacher down. That's what happens. Immediately in their synagogue was a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? He's confronting him. This is very terse, short language. And actually the English kind of has a lot added to it to fill it out. It's like, What is you with me? What do you have to do with me? And I was listening to R.C. Sproul this week, and you know what? There's there's a sense in which Jesus has nothing to do with demons. He is holy, and they are unholy. They're the opposite of holy. He is good, and they are evil. He's taken over this man's life, and we'll see that convulsing people is the very least of what demons do. Do to people who they dominate. But Jesus, there is a sense in which he has everything to do with the demonic realm. Because as we saw last week, with his confrontation with the devil that sets up his ministry, John, uh, 1 John 3.19 says that Jesus came, the reason why he came, one of the reasons is he came to destroy the works of the devil. Hence what happened in Genesis 3, when man fell. And this demon, he names Jesus. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? That's what Jesus came to do. And what does he say? He says, I know who you are the Holy One of God. You know what's really surprising about this, this demon who's controlling this man? This demon who's controlling this man, he knows who Jesus is. Throughout Mark's gospel, we see people referring to Jesus in many different ways. Lord, teacher, son of man, master. But demons call him the Holy One of God, the Son of God, the Son of the Most High God. The people in this synagogue, as we'll see later on, despite the fact that Jesus is about to perform a miracle right before their eyes that authenticates his teaching, 
they don't believe he's the Messiah. They do not believe that he's the Holy One of God. The demons, though, they see through it. They know exactly who Jesus is. Sometimes we deceive ourselves, don't we? We think that being a Christian looks like just having an apprehension of truth. Understanding the facts about Jesus and that we don't have to bother letting the facts alter how we live. James chapter 2 says that when he's talking about people who profess faith, but do not have any evidence to show that the faith that they profess, there we go, is actually their faith. He says that kind of faith is actually the kind of faith that demons have. Even demons confess that there is only one true God in this universe. And you know what? They even shudder at it. This demon, when he's confronting Jesus over a man that he's in control of, there's an element of fear in it because he notices, I notice that he says that, have you come to destroy us? He knows what the Holy One of God is about, and he knows what he came to do. He knows who Jesus is, and he fears him. Our faith, just like the previous section, our faith needs to be one that not, doesn't just merely apprehend the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died on the cross, that he rose again in his reigning. Our faith, true faith, is one that sees these facts, understands them, and in light of these facts, follows him, forsakes everything else, and turns to serve the living God. That's the type of believing and repenting that true believers have. That's the type of believing true believers have. Look what Jesus does, though. The thing that really amazes people and astounds people, they're astounded just at his teaching and the authority he speaks with. They're not used to that at all. But what especially amazes them is when they see that Jesus rebuked him, verse 25, saying, be silent and get out of him. Be silent. In polite company, you know, we're used to say, having a more uh, toned down version of this. He's telling him, you know, you can add the emphasis for me. I don't want to do it in front of you guys. He's telling them to shut their mouth. Stop talking and get out of this man. When you explore the ancient world, you see that demonic possession and people looking for healers and looking for escape from both disease and demons was not something foreign to the ancient world. But you know what happens when you look at those lists? You see magicians. You see people like Simon the Sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. People who have certain incantations, who they read off a list of different spells or different things that they can exercise control over demonic forces or control over the sickness, and then with their incantation, get rid of the issue. This is not so with Jesus's authority. The king that God sends has an authority that when he speaks, it happens. This demon had been suppressing and oppressing this man and all it takes for him, Jesus, to get rid of him is to say, be quiet and get out. And guess what? He's gone. The demon on his way out convulses him, shakes him back and forth violently. He screeches. Everyone sees this, and he leaves. And people make the connection. The same man who said the time is fulfilled, what time? The time the Messiah's arrival, 
and the kingdom of God is near, the same man who's teaching these things has an authority like no one else, able to do things like no one else. And what happens as a result? This little town is in an uproar. And at once, verse 28, his fame spreads throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. With such authority and such power, obviously the next thing Jesus is going to do is go to the local hospital and start healing and start really getting a good... um, getting a good PR team who can start leading, uh, trying to collect people to himself. He's going to establish political power. He's going to get in office, you know. What is our hope as Christians? Our hope as Christians, obviously, we're going to get a Christian president in power who's then going to write Christian laws, and everything will be A-OK after that. That's not the way Jesus functions, actually. He doesn't have to strive for political power because he's already the king of heaven. What he does next is what we normally do after church. Go to lunch with family. Go to lunch. What does he do? Verse 29, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John, those four disciples who follow him now everywhere. Three of those disciples, by the way, make up the inner circle. Now, Simon's mother-in-law, they get there, and Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately, they told him about her, which is what you would do if you just saw what Jesus did. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. The authority of Jesus, yes, it is to be followed. The authority of Jesus demands obedience. The whole natural realm submits to him. The whole angelic realm submits to him, both angels and demons. He's served by angels in verse 13. But not only that, but the amazing thing is, is Jesus' authority is used to serve If that doesn't take you back, we are too familiar with Jesus. Imagine the king of the entire universe, the king of kings who demands your worship and awe, came to serve sinners? That should astound you. And the fact, look at how he does it. Jesus heals people all the time. But Peter when he treats his friend, this new follower of him, this new follower who sees who Jesus is and sees his teaching and his authority, who obviously then brings him to his wife's mother, which if there are any Roman Catholics in the room, yes, Peter was married and his wife had a mother. Yes, this is true. He was married, which kind of negates the whole first pope thing and the celibate priesthood, but that's, that's going off on a different rant. Jesus is brought to his mother. Look at the manner of how he heals her. He took her, he came over to her, took her by the hand, and lifted her up. Look at the compassion, the kindness, the tenderness, not just Amongst people in general, you know, we can say that we love individual, you know, we love this world, we love people. But once you get on an individual level, there's a lot of people that might annoy you or might really bother you. Jesus loved the world and he loved everyone in it. Jesus had kindness and compassion for Peter's loved one, taking her by the hand showing that this king of the universe who has all authority is here to serve. You know what? What happens when he restores this woman? She starts to serve. She's restored to her original purpose. And this might offend, but her purpose is to serve. 
And that's what she starts doing immediately. And as soon as it is night, verse 32, the sun sets, evening is here, people start gathering at the door. Why did the people wait until evening? Well, remember those PhDs, the scribes? They had a whole system of Sabbath laws that you could not walk a certain distance, and it was actually even illegal to get healed on the Sabbath or pursue healing on the Sabbath. We're going to get into all that as we go through Mark, seeing Jesus' authority and how he teaches them about what a proper observance of the Lord's day looks like. But one thing it doesn't look like is restricting people from doing good. Jesus, they, the people wait, and they know where Jesus is. His fame is spreading really quickly after that worship service. After that church service, they wanted to seek him out. They gathered at the door. They brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. You know, usually when you see the word all, you can think about terms of hyperbole. But we're talking about a small town here. This small town, everyone was informed. They were all fishermen in the same line of business. And they all brought everyone who was sick and demon-possessed. Notice, notice in verse 32 that ancient people weren't dumb. There's a difference between demonic possession, some, some force taking over a person and causing them, you know, using their vocal cords as their own, they they saw a difference between that and having a fever, being sick, being lame. They differentiate the two. This is what Jesus has, what's being demonstrated is he came not just to undo the works of the devil, but also all the consequences of sin. Sickness and death is a consequence of sin. It's how we know when we look out at the world that we live in a world that's been cursed by God. And guess what? Jesus, at the end of a very long day, you know, we've just spent a whole day with Jesus, and from morning till evening, he's been serving others. He's been pursuing the interest of others. He's been showing love to other people. And once the sun goes down and the Sabbath is over, his work is not over. He continues to serve tirelessly. He serves the whole city and everyone. He healed many, or he healed all. That word many or all, that's kind of interchangeable in the Greek. He healed all that were brought to him, all the sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And just as he quieted one demon who confessed that he's the Holy One of God. Verse 34 ends with an interesting note that I don't have time to fully explain right now because we'd be here all day. You know, we don't, shouldn't go for like an hour and a half. That would, I wouldn't want to do that to you guys. And he would not permit the demons to speak. He told them to be quiet, just like he told the other one. Because they knew him. The demonic realm under Satan himself all knew who Jesus was. And we have an interesting theme that's going to be developed throughout the rest of the book of Mark, which is this theme of the secret Messiah. Despite the fact that he came onto the scene publicly, demonstrated his authority in public. You know, Jesus taught in public. He performed miracles in public. He demonstrated his authority in public. But the reason why people did not see is because we live in a Romans 1 world. What does Romans 1 say about humanity? Say about the effects of living in a sin-dominated world? Says that we don't have eyes to see and ears to hear. That we suppress the truth in unrighteousness that we ignore 
what is plainly evident about God. Sometimes we kind of bolster our own confidence and think if we were there, if we would have seen Jesus's authority in his teaching, we would have followed him if I was only there to see it. We would have obeyed him and all he taught if we would have seen him heal multitudes. If we would have seen him tirelessly serving, of course we would have followed him. But I won't believe unless I see with my own eyes. That is a lie you're telling yourself. If you would have seen it, you probably would have reacted just like everyone else, which was to explain it away, keep living your life the way you want to live it in your comfortable job with the family you love, and you wouldn't have abandoned anything. And if we're honest with ourselves, that's really the reason why we don't follow Jesus. The reason why if you're in this room today and you don't follow Christ, if you don't believe in him and you haven't turned from your sins, the reason why is not because there's not enough evidence for you to follow him. His authority has been demonstrated. God has preserved his church even today so that you have the opportunity, everyone in this room, to hear his voice through his word, to hear about his public ministry. Evidence is not the problem. The problem is, Our hearts are not willing. We see his authority. We see that he demands obedience, and yet we don't submit, despite the fact that Jesus came to serve. The king that we have, that we see demonstrated in Scripture, is the king who came to serve. And he gives us abundant reasons to follow him. But as a general rule, as a general principle, Jesus has to be the one who comes to us. John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus would tell his disciples and point out to them the fact that he's going to keep them. He said that, remember, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Philippians 1, 6 says that he who started a good work in you will bring it to completion. That's what we need to pray for. See, the thing is, uh, as a short answer about why has it become a secret, why does he not want demons proclaiming that he is the Messiah? These people had all the wrong expectations for the king who is coming. They didn't expect the king who is coming to serve, to undo the works of the devil, They expected a political savior who would redeem them from their life and the problems that they're going through right now. And when we preach the gospel to the world, the good news that the king of the universe has come to save sinners, that's not the kind of king that this world is looking for, is it? We're still looking for political saviors. We still think that our problems are our circumstance. Our primary problem has never been our mere circumstances and has never been the fact that there's evil going out in the world. Our primary problem is not that we have bad rulers, but that we have sinful hearts. That one day we are going to stand before the judgment throne of God, the judgment seat of God. Christ is going to be sitting on that throne and we're going to have to account for him. And the good news is that king has come to serve with tender love and compassion. And he demonstrated his love to the world in the fact that he died to save sinners. That is our hope. That is good news. The king came to serve and he uses all his authority, all of his power to save people just like you and me. That is good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son. 
We thank you that you still are gathering people to be worshipers of the one true God, to fall and bow before the Lord Jesus Christ as our King and our Savior. Heavenly Father, I pray that anyone who is not paying attention to the reading of your word, anyone who in this room does not follow you, is not willing to abandon everything in life in order to following you, who's not willing to die for their love for you, I pray, Lord, that you would reach out to them. Jesus, send your Holy Spirit to them to give them eyes to see and ears to hear the goodness and kindness of Jesus Christ, how he is worthy of all of our adoration. He's worthy of our worship one day in seven. He's worthy of our all. Heavenly Father, for those of us that do follow you, who have been drawn to you, who you have started a good work in our hearts, I pray that you would continually hold before our eyes this Jesus we read about. This Jesus who is so good and so powerful. He truly is a lion. A lion of the tribe of Judah. Who is powerful and fierce and yet tender. I pray that you would hold him before our eyes that we would seek not only to follow him, but to be like him. I pray that you would use us to call people to repentance, that we would be like fishers of men, casting out the nets of the gospel, preaching to the world, and seeing who you will save. We love you, Lord, and we praise your name. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.